So, uh, as a ch chair of, of the second session, uh, I'm very glad to welcome all of those of you who have joined since, since the uh, meeting began. Uh, and uh, 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 well, our second session uh, uh, is rather un unhelpfully perhaps called uh, Risks and Technologies, but that's a very brief bit of shorthand for the, the various different topics that we're trying to cover in this session. Uh, the first is uh, uh, to go through a few of the highest nuclear risks uh, which humankind faces at the moment. Uh, and uh, in that respect, we're, we're focusing on, first of all, uh, a, a, a European focus with particular reference to Iran, Israel, and Western Asia. Uh, and then on emerging technologies and their impact on crises. Uh, and then finally, uh, all the other threats which, which don't easily fall under those headings. So let me start with the, uh, the first such heading, that's to say uh, the particular highest risk areas and let me uh, start with our first speaker, who's Ambassador Peter Jenkins, uh, who's kindly agreed to, to make his contribution focus on Iran, Israel, and West Asia. And, and he is very particularly well qualified to this. He's a long-term British diplomat. Uh, he was made the UK ambassador to the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna. Uh, and there he was particularly concerned with the international, nu the nuclear aspects of international peace and security. Uh, and more recently, uh, he's become more specifically involved in the negotiations with, uh, with Iran, uh, particularly in the apparent breakdown, but possible resuscitation of the JCPOA. So without further in delay, I will invite him to make his contribution. Uh, he is, so to speak, uh, the keynote speaker of this session. Uh, so we're allowing him, uh, I think he said, we said 25 minutes. So Peter, please go ahead. Ah, uh, Christopher, I thought we agreed that I would try not to speak for much more than 10 minutes. In practice, uh, but, I think it may be closer to 15, but I'm afraid people will be disappointed if they expect me to talk for for 25. Well, so, anyway, okay. so, so, since, since we have uh, five minutes to catch up from the first session, uh, let, let's let's go with, with your proposed timing. Let, thank you. Thank you. Let me start by saying a few words about the talks underway in Vienna to revive the 2015 nuclear agreement with Iran. At this point, I think prospects for reviving the agreement must be characterized as uncertain. This for several reasons. It's not clear that the US is ready to lift enough of the sanctions imposed under Trump to satisfy Iran. Many sanctions imposed under Trump are related nominally to non-nuclear matters. Iran expects many of these, if not all of them, to be lifted. The US has shown an inclination to hold back supposedly non-nuclear sanctions to serve as leverage in subsequent negotiations 
on other aspects of Iranian behavior that the US dislikes. It's not clear that Iran will cease demanding verification of sanctions lifting before doing what it must do to return to full compliance with the 2015 agreement. As the US ideal would be for Iran to move first, uh, the very least the US is likely to accept are parallel moves to full compliance. A formula that allows both sides to save face and caters for an absence of trust on both sides must be found, uh, but that won't be easy. Iran is currently operating six IR2 centrifuge cascades, one IR4 cascade, and one IR6 cascade. All of these centrifuges are more efficient than the IR1 centrifuges specified as permissible under the 2015 agreement. Iran is asking that under a revived agreement, these later models be permitted in place of the IR1s, since many of the latter were destroyed last month by Israeli saboteurs. It's not clear that the US will agree to this, even if Iran can demonstrate that the combined output of the new machines would not exceed the combined output of the old ones. The US, is li li the US likes to see the 2015 agreement as a way of retarding Iranian mastery of nuclear technology. On a more positive note, it does seem possible that if an agreement cannot be reached by the end of this month, ahead of a presidential election in Iran on 18 June, negotiations will resume post-election, whatever the result. Iran's supreme leader seems to recognize that the 2015 agreement has value. The unfreezing of dollar reserves in various places around the world and the lifting of sanctions on oil exports, still only a third of potential volumes and a vital source of government revenue are worth having. Should we in the West also see value in the 2015 agreement? Yes, it provides for intrusive international monitoring of all nuclear activity in Iran, and it restricts fissile material production capabilities. It offers a prospect of confidence in the absence of undeclared material or facilities in Iran. It offers probability that diversion of material or equipment to a covert facility would be detected in good time. Americans like to claim that it closes all pathways to a nuclear weapon. That is not strictly true. The covert pathway is not entirely closed, but from an Iranian perspective, it would entail a high risk of detection. In fact, the risk of Iran seeking nuclear weapons is currently low whether or not the 2015 agreement can be revived. Western intelligence agencies have judged with a high degree of confidence 
that in 2003, the Supreme Leader ordered an end to nuclear weapon research. Research aimed at the making of five nuclear weapons, if Mr. Netanyahu can be believed, and that the Revolutionary Guards have, been, have largely complied with the Supreme Leader's uh, instruction. The Supreme Leader has issued a fatwa against the possession and use of nuclear weapons. Iran's diplomats have put Iran's reputation within the non-aligned movement on the line by affirming on numerous occasions that Iran is fully committed to nuclear non-proliferation uh, pledges. The Iranian determination to retain an enrichment capability they do not truly need for civil purposes is troubling, but it can be explained as part of a nuclear hedging strategy and a thirst for national prestige. The Iranian leadership has shown itself to be shrewd and adept at cost-benefit judgments. Settling for a capability and stopping short of crossing the nuclear threshold looks to be a shrewder option uh, than going for a bomb. That said, uh, there will be other options for mitigating concern about Iranian capabilities and intentions if the 2015 agreement expires. The friendship of Russia and China in particular uh, is of increasing importance to Iran. Neither Russia nor China would be content for Iran to acquire nuclear weapons. They can be expected to press for Iran to continue to allow intrusive International Atomic Energy Agency monitoring and to comply with the NPT. In addition, Agreement to a nuclear weapon-free zone in the Gulf might conceivably be a possibility if Saudi Arabia's current interest in creating a basis for durable coexistence with Iran proves lasting. A Gulf nuclear weapon-free zone would have the added virtue of consolidating Saudi Arabia's NPT commitments Saudi Arabia having declared an intention to match Iran's enrichment capability. Would a Middle East nuclear weapon-free zone also be an option? No, because Israel is determined to retain its undeclared nuclear arsenal of 80 to 100 warheads. Iran has been a supporter of a Middle East zone since the time of the Shah, as are all the, Arab states, all the Arab states of the region led by Egypt. Sadly, what's foreseeable is that Egypt will continue to press for a Middle East zone at NPT conferences and in the United Nations, and the US, on behalf of Israel, will continue to produce reasons why Egypt's proposals are premature. What about the use of force to destroy Iranian facilities? Would that be a good idea? Israel is thought to have been eager to attack Iranian facilities from the air 
on several past occasions, alone or in US company, but to have been restrained by the US. Such military aggression would be a gross violation of international law. International Atomic Energy Agency inspectors could be among the resulting casualties and the benefit would be doubtful. Iran's small centrifuge facility at Fordow, uh, not industrial in scale, but ideal for weapons grade material production, would probably survive because it's buried deep within a mountain. And Iran would have been given a good excuse to withdraw from the NPT and embark on nuclear weapon acquisition stoppable only through invasion and occupation. Thank you, that's it, Christopher.